All right, back on A Young Turks. Uh, got a couple of great guests for you guys, so let's get to it. Joining me now is Kimberly Graham. She is running uh, for United States Senate in Iowa. Kimberly, uh, welcome to the Young Turks. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Well, you're off to a good start because I love your hashtag. Uh, <laughs> hashtag best senator money can't buy. <laughs> so, um, why emphasize that uh, and what does that mean? Right, so obviously we could have chosen a lot of different slogans. In fact, we've added a second slogan, which is hashtag everyone counts. But the first slogan was best senator money can't buy and that's gonna be with us throughout. And that's because we really wanna highlight the fact that our democracy has been hijacked by big money in politics and that we really need a representative Congress. One that's really um, made up more of just regular working people and less of people that are already wealthy or well connected to wealth. All right, uh, so I have to confess that I'm not caught up on all the uh, politics of Iowa these days. So uh, how many people are in this primary uh, on the Democratic side? Uh, I believe four. <laughs> and are, are you the candidate that uh, the Democratic Senate is, uh, Senate leadership is backing or is there someone else? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, the, per, the person that the DSCC uh, came out and endorsed less than a week after she announced is Teresa Greenfield. And um, all the other people, Teresa included, running in this race are nice people. I know them, obviously, I speak at a lot of events we all speak at, and I, I know all of them. Um, so anything I say about this is not an attack on those people, it's an attack on the system and the process, which is far from a democracy, in my opinion. Can I guess, I don't know anything about uh, Teresa. Uh, she is a business person uh, and knows a fair number of uh, wealthy people. Um, so let me just stop there. Is that is that I, again? I I don't know. Maybe she's a farmer. Maybe she's a small farmer. Maybe she's a pharmacist. Uh, maybe she's a plumber. Uh, but I don't think so. My guess is based on the fact that the Democratic leadership picked her that she has more wealth. Um, she's the president of a small real estate company. Oh, look at that! A business owner, just like predicted. Interesting. Uh, all right. Uh, so, look, people have to realize that the uh, corruption ju isn't just in the Republican Party. The Democratic Party will systematically go and pick the richest people in the race every time. Every time. So, Kimberly, uh, you see how you screwed up here by not being born as wealthy. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and I could tell Schumer didn't pick you because ain't no Schumer candidate gonna do hashtag best uh, senator money can't buy. <laughs> so, all right, uh, one of the things that the Schumer people of the world will say uh, is, no, but look, Kimberly's for single payer, uh, so that can't win in Iowa. Uh, so you are for single payer, so how do you answer that? Right, so <clears throat> of course I've heard more than once that a real progressive can't win in Iowa. And to that, I always say to people, do you remember Senator Tom Harkin? the main architect of the Americans with Disabilities Act, because he was very progressive, he was no centrist, and he was our senator for 30 years. He was in Congress for another 10 on top of that in the House of Representatives. And unfortunately, the people of Iowa haven't had a true strong advocate who will work for them since Senator Harkin retired in 2014. And Obama won Iowa. So now look, as it turned Twice. out, Obama was more centrist than we would have liked. Uh, 
but he that was not the perception. The perception that he was put out by Fox News was that he was a Marxist socialist, and yet he won Iowa. Right. And you know, I think that he did that the way that we're going to win Iowa. Um, there's no shortcuts to winning Iowa. The way that you win Iowa is you travel to all of our 99 counties over and over and over again. You work your butt off and you spend the time. You you have to go talk to people. And the thing that is always remembered about the way Barack Obama campaigned here was that he always had time to talk to small radio station people. He always had time for those small newspapers. He always had time and in the beginning, he would go literally talk to two or three or four people in somebody's kitchen. My son's grandfather met him for the first time in a, in a neighbor's kitchen, literally in Indianola, Iowa. <laughs> yeah, so Kimberly, um, it, since you didn't run a, a large real estate firm, uh, what was your background before uh, going into this race? For the last 20 years, I've been an attorney for abused or neglected children and parents. I've also done some mediation and collaborative uh, law as well. But for the last 20 years, it's been my job to stand up and fight for vulnerable people in Iowa. And that's what I plan to continue to do as the next US Senator from this state. Some people in the mainstream media have uh, trouble understanding why I don't like democratic leadership. Um, <laughs> here you are fighting for uh, neglected children in a time where the Trump administration uh, has neglected and abused children in those camps. And the Schumers of the world say, no, you're not rich enough. Oh, God, that's repulsive. Uh, all right, so Kimberly. Um, Let's talk more about your policies. So you say you can't be bought, so I assume no corporate PAC money. Correct, also no money from any lobbyists. And if I find out that a lobbyist has given us money like individually, that money will be returned. We found out that one of our opponents in this race did take a substantial donation. She claims she's not taking any corporate PAC money and I have no reason to doubt that. But um, in looking through the FEC reports, we saw a sizable donation from a partner in a lobbying firm for insurance, tobacco, and um, uh, pharma, pharmaceuticals, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, so look, the Just Democrats started the uh, no corporate PAC money pledge. And now there's a lot of Johnny come lately's who, but that are looking for loopholes. So that's, that's not <laughs> right. the point of this. So, but and you know, uh, Jane, I wanted to comment on something you said a minute ago because I think it's really important. I was actually driving three hours away, you know, it's a big state, <laughs> um, driving somewhere to a campaign event a few weeks ago, and it just suddenly hit me that um, the contrast between Senator Joni Ernst, who's the person that I'll be replacing, uh, and I could not be any starker. You know, she continues to support the president and uh, their policies of inflicting incredible trauma on children, trauma that they will never recover from. And um, I've spent 20 years standing up for the rights of children. It's like polar opposites. Yeah, Joni Ernst said that she was gonna make Washington uh, squeal, I think. Um, so are they squealing for joy because she's <laughs> uh, taken all the lobbyist money and sold out the people of Iowa? Is that what she meant? Because I can't see, she didn't seem to do any campaign finance reform as far as I can tell. She didn't pass any laws against lobbyists. In fact, she revels in the cash that lobbyists shower her with. So can you tell who's squealing and in what direction because of Joni Ernst? 
Right. So I think on our website, we say that, you know, she ran on a promise to make them squeal in Washington, but the only people squealing are Iowans harmed by her votes. Um, and that's certainly been the case and harmed by her support as well of this administration. Um, as you know, I'm sure Iowa is a big agricultural state and the trade war, ridiculous trade war is really harming our rural communities. Farmer suicides are up, farm bankruptcies are up. Um, it's absolutely horrific and you know, currently shows no signs of, of stopping. And I don't see Senator Ernst standing up and fighting for uh, rural communities in Iowa at all. So Kimberly, you're on the campaign trail. So I'm curious, uh, what does Joni Ernst say when you guys point out that the farmers have been devastated by Trump's tariffs? Uh, is she like, yeah, cool, whatever? Uh, or is she like, well, we got him a bailout, uh, and you know, because big government works really well, uh, so we should subsidize the people, pick winners and losers, which would be the exact opposite of her so-called ideology. What on God's green earth does she say about the devastation of the farmers in Iowa? Oh, we had a little uh, Skype issue there. Little little blip, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I heard what you're. I think I got what you're saying. Um, I, I what I have heard her say is a, a couple of different things. Um, you know, I've heard her actually claim that farmers are still behind uh, President Trump. You know, that they still support him and that they're like willing to basically they're willing to take it on the chin to support the president's policies. I've heard that uh, from her in various ways. Um, Oh, and lately, I think since she understands she's up for re-election, I've actually heard her say that she, uh, you know, believes that uh, the president. She disagrees with the president, um, and that she believes that that Iowa voices are being heard when she has conversations with him. Okay, yeah, she hears voices. That's a really convincing. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, you know, when you're the senator from Iowa, you're not supposed to be talking about how it's okay for the farmers to take it on the chin. You're supposed to fight for them. You're supposed to fight for your constituents. Uh, So one more thing, Kimberly, you say you're for climate justice. What does that mean for you? Right, so I mean, a great starting place would be if we would uh, adopt the the resolution, the Green New Deal, and and start implementing all the legislation that will be need to be implemented to fully put all of that into effect. You know that that's a good start. You're probably going to need to do a lot more than that as fast as we possibly can. You know, and it's the reason that we say climate justice, and we don't just say climate change or climate crisis, um, which I also use climate crisis quite a bit rather than climate change to highlight uh, the seriousness of it. Um, The fact is that climate issues tend to, the fallout tends to fall on the poorest people, basically, typically is what happens. Uh, Same with environmental pollution. It tends to be the poorest people in our country that really bear the brunt of it and have to deal with it the worst. Um, I have a 20 year old son and the other day he seriously said to me, you know, mama, I think I'm gonna buy some land in the middle of Canada and the north part of Canada because that's the only place we'll be able to live when I'm older. And we have to understand that high school and college kids are legitimately thinking that way and they're scared. And you know, we all should be getting this done yesterday. Yeah, it's not just students that feel that way. I told our audience the other day, I walking through the streets of Houston. Now Houston's always hot, right? But it, the climate crisis is making it worse and worse. I thought maybe I should buy land in Montana because this some parts of this country are going to become uninhabitable. Right. 
and let alone the planet. All right, Kimberly Graham uh, fighting for the downtrodden, uh, fighting for the average person um, and, uh, and, and for justice. Uh, KimberlyForIowa.com, uh, KimberlyForIowa.com and we will have those links down below if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Kimberly, thank you for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, we appreciate it. Thanks, no bye problem. bye. Yep. All right, uh, when we come back, uh, the legendary Ryan Grimm. All right, back on the Young Turks. Join me now, Ryan Grimm, uh, Washington Bureau Chief of The Intercept, also TYT contributor. You can check him out on Rebel HQ, go to tyt.com uh, and click on Rebel HQ and under our shows and see his reporting. Uh, Ryan, welcome, brother. Hey, good to be here. All right, good to have you. So The Intercept's killing it. Uh, we did two intercept stories uh, on today's show alone, um, and uh, I'm pretty sure your staff's a little bit less than the New York <laughs> Times. Um, <laughs> so uh, I want to talk about uh, one of them in particular. Let's start uh, with this and then uh, work our way through the day's news. So uh, it was a story on Joe Biden and how he, um, in essence, started the war on drugs. Uh, yeah. And and so, look, Ryan, I have to confess that I didn't know some of those details and how aggressively he worked with Strom Thurmond, how aggressively he pushed Ronald Reagan to the right on this issue. So for those folks who didn't hear our story on it earlier, first, give us the history of Biden on war on drugs a little bit, and then we'll talk about the present day ramifications. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. You know, in the in the late 1970s, uh, Joe Biden uh, started going after Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, uh, saying that Carter was was basically being soft on crime and soft on the war on drugs. Carter was trying to move uh, the country away from you know a, a punitive approach. Uh, his initial uh, drug uh, kind of drug advisor. Uh, had actually recommended legalizing a significant number of uh, of drugs, and eventually got, uh, had to resign because he was caught at a Washington party uh, doing cocaine with Hunter Thompson. Well, this is the kind of kind of liber- libertine and liberal environment that was going on in the nineteen late nineteen seventies. the uh, The federal prison population actually fell by a quarter under Jimmy Carter in just in just three years. You know, we're, so we're talking about you know down to like twenty thousand federal uh, prisoners. Now, uh, the state level uh, prison population was rising throughout uh, the nineteen seventies, but uh, the the politics was pushing it was pushing against it. Joe Biden wanted to go the complete uh, opposite direction and was demanding that that you know Carter be much more aggressive in his funding of the of the drug war and funding of police and new prisons. Uh, Carter, of course, lost to Reagan in 1980, and Biden then lost no time uh, pushing Reagan, who was not interested at the time, believe it or not, of being kind of the Reagan that we now know him to be. You know, he was much more interested in slashing welfare, uh, in battling unions, uh, in building up defense spending. You know, he wasn't trying uh, to kind of recreate his role as the law and order uh, governor out in California. It was Biden who then teamed, Biden was top ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, teamed up with Strom Thurmond, uh, arch segregationist, outright racist, uh, and and pushed Thurmond uh, to write tough on crime legislation that Reagan vetoed because it was too tough. 
which is just uh, an, uh, an astounding statement of, of how extreme Biden was at the time. So if you wanna get all the details and all the devastating quotes, uh, check out the piece in the Intercept or check out uh, the story we did on it earlier in the show. We'll try to put the links down below uh, on that. But now I wanna talk about ramifications. So uh, here I go again with uh, my media critique. Uh, so I know that the average voter doesn't know, shoot, I didn't know it, right? right. The, the depth to which uh, Biden was the, the creator of the war on drugs. Uh, and, and, and all the people who got locked up. And for people uh, that don't have the context on it, so Ryan talked about how back then there was about 20,000 people in federal prisons. Uh, by 2013, it was over 210,000 people. So nearly 10x of, of what it used to be because of the bills that Biden championed for decades and then eventually got passed. Uh, so my question is, how much does the media know uh, that he is uh, the guy who created the war on drugs. Uh, and maybe to be fair to them, maybe they just don't know. Uh, or do they know and they're like, oh, that's not that big a deal. So I think a lot of them don't know. And you know, you're not alone uh, in, in not knowing about that. Before historian David Stein kind of pitched this uh, story to us, I didn't I didn't know it either. I knew that he was always a tough on crime guy. You know, we all we 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 knew that, but we assumed that he was maybe being tough on crime. Uh, as a political gesture to kind of, uh, you know, look tough against Republicans who were the real, you know, the real ones locking people up, and he's maybe moderating them just a little bit, you know, trying to out Republican the Republicans, uh, when in fact that turned out not to be the case. That, uh, you know, he was actually kind of a driving uh, force behind it. Uh, I didn't know that, and I think the media uh, covers politics in such a way that the president gets. Uh, a lot of the credit for what happens uh, fairly and unfairly, credit and blame uh, during their time in office. So the drug war ramped up under Ronald Reagan and uh, Ronald Reagan launched his campaign uh, went on, uh, you know, in, a, in a racist fashion in Philadelphia, Mississippi. You know, it's, it's easy to, to, to and, it, and, and Reagan, once he did get into the drug war and once he did get into uh, mass incarceration, he 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 really drove it himself. You know, this was not somebody who, toward the middle and the end of his tenure, was reluctant. So it's understandable that in our collective memories we think of Reagan as as driving it and Joe Biden just as along for the ride. Um, we know that the 1994 crime bill uh, was called the Biden Crime Bill, uh, and and we know that that played a significant role in ramping it up. So the media is not unaware of what what Biden's role has been. It's, a, it's interesting though, his defense has always been, well, look, the 94 crime bill, you can't blame that for mass incarceration. You know, the, the policies that set mass incarceration in place were already well underway uh, by that point. So you can't blame Biden 94, <laughs> that, that's true. You can blame Biden late 70s and Biden 1980s. So now that this story is out there, it, it will be a question to see whether or not uh, the media at the, at the next debate or on the campaign trail um, asks him uh, how he feels about not just being a supporter of of mass incarceration over the decades, but a but a driving force behind it. I, so I, I think it. I think to answer your your question though, a, a ton of people just simply didn't know what a what a huge role he played. Ryan, um, but yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just uh, I wanted to ask you a quick inside baseball question about mm -hmm. that. Um, so. 
so they didn't know and that's okay, like we just said we didn't know the depths of it and until this historian came along and pointed out the exact record. Um, so it's not a thing to beat up the media on. Uh, the inside baseball question is, so then when you got a story like this at the intercept and and it really illuminates his record in a way that people were not familiar with. How do you push it out and get it in front of the rest of the media so that at least they're aware? So the moderators in the next debate and the one after that, etc., know about it because until they ask those questions, the population and the voters are not going to know about it. Right. I mean, a lot of it is actually kind of guerrilla at 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 that level because the number of people that you have to get the story in front of becomes pretty small. So I have my own. Newsletter that I send out to uh, the public, and it's more than a hundred thousand folks on it. But it started as something that I sent to people like here in Washington. So it has, you know, the the cable bookers. It's got the hosts. It's got the uh, you know the Capitol Hill reporters. Those those folks. So you know they're going to get my spam, and they're going to so they're going to see that story uh, in in their in, inbox probably later tonight when I send it out. Um, and I'll send them this clip actually while I'm at it. Uh, but after that, it becomes kind of like one on one. Um, like, hey, uh, you, you know, you just you're just DMing and texting and emailing reporters, you know, individual reporters, um, you know, making sure that they that they didn't miss this. And one reason I actually started the the newsletter is that I would um, I'd have a, back when I was at the Huffington Post, I'd have a, a story that I thought was really big. It would be the top splash story on the uh, all across the site. I'd I'd go on Rachel Maddow or something later that night to talk about it. It would. I, you know, it would be making the rounds, or else I thought it was on Twitter, and then I'd see someone in Washington a few days later. And say, you know, did you see my story on X Y Z? And even if it was the thing that they were on, uh, oftentimes you'd be like, "No, I actually missed that." You know, there's there's just so much content that flows ar- around the world that people people just uh, people just miss it because we don't have. You know, like three news broadcasters in the evening anymore. We don't have just one Walter Cronkite telling everybody what's going on. There's the, people personalize their feeds, and so if they don't see it, if they're not watching Twitter for the hour that it's hot, you know, if they are not um, watching that episode of Rachel Maddow, and frankly, most people um, under you know 45 or 50 are not watching um, anything on cable news in the evening, then you know there's a good chance that they're actually going to end up missing the story, no matter how many millions of people it got in front of. So you have to kind of hit them individually with it. Um, yep. And that that turns out to work. Um, it, it's, it's not a manual labor, um, but it's it's there's nothing to replace it. Right. All right. Uh, real quick, I, I wanted to talk about Nadler and, and the kind of impeachment proceedings. <laughs> uh, so do you have any idea what that is? Is it impeachment inquiry or is it not? I've heard it called that. Um, let's go with it. Uh, you know, it's certainly <laughs> an inquiry that could lead towards impeachment. Um, you know, like I guess. Uh, I mean, and that's the funny thing. There's so much uh, confusion um, around the the term impeachment too, which for some reason Democratic leaders have used uh, to shy away from it rather than kind of lean into it. But you know, a lot of the Confusion among the public is that if somebody's impeached, if a president's impeached, then they're automatically out. And I understand why that, like, it sounds like, oh, you've been impeached, you're done. Like that, that's completely logical. I'm not blaming people for thinking that, but in fact, you impeach someone in the House and then you move them over uh, to the to the Senate. 
I think Ocasio-Cortez's approach to this is exactly right. Just impeach him in the House, just be done with it. And let let these vulnerable Republican senators vote to acquit Donald Trump. You know, let Susan Collins go to voters in Maine and explain to them why she voted to acquit and let, let there be a trial that goes for a couple of weeks and, and, and makes news. They, you know, they're very nervous about losing this impeachment trial, which of course they would, because you need two thirds of the votes and it's like it's hard to imagine any Republicans voting. But so in a world where the the, the process is so fluid. Uh, sure. Let's call, let's call this proceeding an impeachment. Yeah. The beginning of an impeachment inquiry. But Ryan, last question on that: uh, Is it? Are they putting out a confusing message because uh, Nadler and Pelosi don't agree? Like, if it really was an impeachment inquiry, wouldn't Pelosi uh, do a press conference and go, "Goddamn right, we're impeaching him. That's what we're doing." And she has obviously and actively not done that. It's yeah, thoroughly. Confusing to the point where, you know, we don't even know if it's an actual inquiry. Um, you know, and, and it's interesting that we've gotten to a place in our congressional history that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee has to kind of beg and plead with the Speaker of the House uh, just to move forward with uh, an impeachment inquiry. Whereas in the in the past, the, the the chairpersons, well, the chairmen in the past of the committees just they just went forward with what they wanted to do. But sure, the met the broad message. Uh, that the public has gotten from House Democrats is that they are not impeaching. Um, so they'll certainly be confused if they start to see impeachment proceedings. God damn, man. <laughs> the Democrats are such a mess. Uh, they're, they're leadership. And then they get, uh, and then Nadler will sometimes act outraged, like, well, I said it's an impeachment inquiry. Where's the question? Well, I don't know. We asked the Speaker of the House, and it seemed like there was a question. <laughs> so let's take that. Take that up with your boss. All right, exactly. All right, Ryan Grimm, Washington Bureau Chief of the Intercept. We appreciate you joining us and and all the illuminating stories. Thank you. Uh -huh. All right, have a great night. You too. All right, uh, going to take a quick break. Uh, last half hours for the members. Uh, I, I actually want to touch on a couple of the stories uh, we talked about, but uh, some amazing facts that we didn't give you. Uh, that I'm dying to share with you guys. So we'll do that and probably share a personal story or two. Uh, so, and I'll do a lot more personal stories in old school, which is later tonight, uh, about my epiphanies and realizations about life that might just might actually help you guys as well as much as it helped me. So tyt.com slash join to become a member. Oh, and we'll see you there. <laughs> 